welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. I want you to know how I am getting along and what I am doing. This is why I am sending Tychicus to you. He is a dear friend as well as a faithful servant of the Lord. He will tell you how I am doing and he will cheer you up. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 21 and 22 Contemporary English Version Tychicus is a dear friend who faithfully works and serves the Lord with us, and he will give you the news about me. I am sending him to cheer you up by telling you how we are getting along. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Contemporary English Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're grateful to be with you today. We are in the midst of a series on Anchored by Truth that we are calling Paul's Places. By Paul, of course, we're referring to the Apostle Paul, who wrote at least 13 of the 27 books that comprise the New Testament. Some Bible commentators believe Paul also wrote the book of Hebrews, but we cannot be certain about that because the author of the letter to Hebrews did not name himself. In this Paul's Places series, We are taking a look at Paul's letters to the churches that are identified in our Bibles by the names of cities or the region to which they were sent. So far, we have looked at the letters to the churches in Rome and Corinth, which are cities, and Galatia, which was a Roman province, in what would be modern-day Turkey. Today, we're going to look at Paul's letters to two other churches that were located in modern-day Turkey, Ephesus and Colossae. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., why don't you remind us of the reason we wanted to do this Paul's Places series? Well, before we begin, I would like to thank our listeners for joining us here today. We know that the people who join us on Anchored by Truth are people who are absolutely serious about wanting to know the Bible better and wanting to understand their faith better. So we want to do this Paul's Places series because in our day and age, many people have lost sight of the fact that the New Testament documents are extraordinarily reliable as historical records. And one of the ways we can demonstrate that is by looking at the geography, history, and cultural information that is contained within those records. And when we do that, we see that the information contained in the documents, the letters, the epistles that Paul wrote, we see that it corresponds perfectly with what we know about geography and history from other sources, from other extra-biblical sources, as well as from looking across the biblical records themselves and seeing that they are internally consistent. That's one of the hallmarks of truth and reliability in documents, that they are internally consistent. And that's always true of the biblical documents, and that's true of the New Testament records. So this amplifies the confidence that we can place in those records. And of course, this is very important because the New Testament records are the records from which we get the most information about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus 
as well as the growth of the very first decades of the Christian Church. In other words, if we are confident about the geographic and historical information contained in Paul's records, we may be confident about the validity of the report Paul makes. And in every report Paul made, he affirmed the central element of the Christian faith, that Jesus rose from the dead. Christianity is distinguished from all other religions because Christianity affirms that our founder and central figure is still alive. Jesus died, but he did not remain dead. Jesus rose and now sits at the right hand of God. This is why we may justifiably worship him. Only God has power over life and death. Jesus demonstrated that he had the power when he rose out of the tomb on Easter and appeared to hundreds of his followers over the next 40 days. Amen. You know, it would be impossible for anyone today to personally testify that they were a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. None of us have lived for 2,000 years, so it's pretty obvious there's nobody around today who would have been able to say, yes, I saw Jesus die on the cross, and then I saw him after his resurrection. So we base our trust in the historicity of the resurrection in the records that have been given to us by the apostles, and then by the people that the apostles directly supervised and informed, people like Luke. So it can be very helpful for our own faith to take a little time and see how we can confidently establish the historical reliability of the records that teach us about Jesus. And we hope that that's what this Paul's Places series is doing. Now you said that today you want to actually begin a study of two of Paul's epistles, Ephesians and Colossians. Why are we tackling these two books together? Well, you might call this portion of the Paul's Places series a tale of two cities, but it's actually a tale of three cities. The New Testament contains, as the books of Ephesians and Colossians, letters, epistles, that Paul sent to the churches in Ephesus and Colossae. But in the epistle to the Colossians, Paul mentions a sister city of Colossae called Laodicea. So during the next couple of episodes of Anchored by Truth, I want to take a look at all three of these cities and see the role that they play in the New Testament. So to do that properly, we're going to have to look not only at the books of Ephesians and Colossians, but we are also going to have to take a look at the very last book of the Bible, which is Revelation. So let's take a quick look at one of the first portions of the book of Revelation. This will be from chapter 1, verse 4 of the book of Revelation. The first part of that verse says, quote, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, unquote. You know, I don't think most people realize that when John wrote the book of Revelation, he actually had a specific group of churches in mind. Revelation is the subject of so much sensationalism that I think people often miss that the opening part of the book has very specific messages for very specific churches. I agree with that observation. The seven churches that John addressed his communication, his revelation to, were the churches in these seven cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So one fact leaps out at us right away. The city of Ephesus was the only city that received an individual letter from Paul, but is also mentioned in that list of seven churches from the book of Revelation. And a second fact that also leaps out at us is that Laodicea 
which again is mentioned several times in the epistle to the Colossians, is also part of that group of seven cities that is mentioned in the opening part of the book of Revelation. Now, none of the other cities to which Paul addressed an individual epistle are mentioned in Revelation. And while the city of Colossae is not mentioned by name in Revelation, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that Colossae and Laodicea were both located in a region of Asia called the Lycus Valley. They were sister cities, just a few miles apart. Now, of course, it was called the Lycus Valley because in ancient times, the Lycus River ran through the valley. So how far away was Laodicea from Colossae? Colossae was about 10 miles east of Laodicea. And how far away was Ephesus from Colossae? Colossae was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. So let's make sure the dots are connected as we move along. We're studying the books of Ephesians and Colossians together because they share a number of connections in the Bible. Both Ephesus and Colossae are located in modern-day Turkey, as is Colossae's sister city, Laodicea. But Colossae and Laodicea are a lot closer together than Colossae and Ephesus. So, one fact leaps out right away that confirms the accuracy of Paul's letter to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul said, quote, After this letter has been read to your people, be sure to have it read in the church of Laodicea, and you should read that letter that I have sent to them, unquote. That's from the contemporary English version. But Paul did not include a similar admonition in his letter to the Ephesians, even though all of these cities were located within the Roman province of Phrygia. It made sense for Paul to tell the Colossians and the Laodiceans to share letters with each other because they were only 10 miles apart. But Ephesus was a hundred miles away from them. A hundred miles was a long distance to travel in those times. Yes. And as long as we're on the subject of how the geographic references within Colossians make sense, let's take a look at just one more geographic reference. Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 say, Your own Epaphras, who serves Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He always prays hard that you may fully know what the Lord wants you to do and that you may do it completely. I have seen how much trouble he has gone through for you and the followers in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So, in the book of Colossians, besides mentioning Laodicea, Paul also mentions another city from the Lycus Valley, which was named Hierapolis. And that makes, again, very good sense geographically. Colossae was about 10 miles east of Laodicea, and Hierapolis was about 6 miles north of Laodicea. So, it makes sense that the believer named Epaphras would have had concerns for the churches in all three of those cities, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. All three of them were located in the Lycus Valley, fairly close together. Right. And even though this gentleman named Epaphras was with Paul at the time Paul wrote his epistle to the Colossians, most scholars believe that Epaphras probably founded the church in Colossae, and he may also have founded the churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. In Colossians, Paul seems to indicate that he, Paul, had never personally visited either Colossae or Laodicea. You are thinking of Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, which says, quote, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally, unquote. That's also from the New Living Translation. Right. But we do know 
that Paul had spent a considerable amount of time in Ephesus. From the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, we know that Paul spent over two years and possibly close to three years in Ephesus. Verse 10 says, quote, This teaching went on for two years, so that all the people who lived in the province of Asia, both Jews and Gentiles, heard the word of the Lord, unquote. Yes. So, it is quite likely that sometime during this two- to three-year period, Epaphras came into contact with Paul while Paul was ministering in Ephesus. Now, before Paul's time, Colossae had been a busy, large, very thriving and prosperous town. Colossae had been the center of an important wool industry, and it was located on a very important overland trade route. Now, by Paul's time, Colossae had declined somewhat, and in Paul's day, it was a fairly modest market town. Laodicea, by contrast, again, just 10 miles away, it was a very wealthy and important center for banking and textiles, and it had a bit of a medical industry. Laodicea had a medical school that had developed an ointment that was being used to treat eye problems. So it's entirely reasonable that Epaphras may have been connected to one of these businesses that was located in Colossae or in the Lycus Valley. If Epaphras was a businessman in a business that was thriving in or around the Lycus Valley, he might very well have had many occasions to travel to Ephesus, where he could have met Paul. Ephesus was an important trade center in Paul's day. It was on the west coast of Asia and was an important gateway that linked the Mediterranean world with the inland part of Asia. In Paul's time, Ephesus was one of the five most important cities in the entire Roman Empire. Rome was, of course, the most important city, but Ephesus was ranked in the same category as cities such as Corinth, Antioch of Syria, and Alexandria of Egypt. I guess we might liken Ephesus to Miami, which is the connecting city between North and South America. Well, that's a great analogy. Ephesus was a very important place to do business. So even though it would have been a several days journey from Laodicea and Colossae, a merchant or trader or banker, someone who was in business, they might have had the occasion to go to Ephesus regularly, even though they had to travel several days to get there. Now, Scripture does not tell us what trade or occupation Epaphras practiced. But I don't think it's unreasonable to think that he was probably financially successful. At any rate, he was prosperous enough to later leave Asia and travel to Rome to be with Paul while Paul was imprisoned in Rome from around the years A.D. 60 to A.D. 62. Ephesians and Colossians are two of the four epistles that are sometimes referred to as the prison epistles. Again, epistle is just another word for letter. These epistles are called the prison epistles because scholars think Paul wrote them during the period of imprisonment that is described in Acts chapter 28 verse 16 through 30. The four prison epistles are Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. Philemon was a believer who lived in and around Colossae. Yes. Paul wrote to Philemon to request that Philemon be kind to a believer named Onesimus. Now, at one time, Onesimus was either a slave or a servant of Philemon, but Onesimus had run away from Colossae to Rome. Now, in Rome, somehow, Onesimus came into contact with Paul, and Onesimus became a Christian. So Onesimus and Paul, probably in their conversations together, decided that Onesimus really needed to do the right thing and return to Philemon and reconcile with him. 
But Paul, who was very conscious about Onesimus' delicate situation, did not want to send Onesimus back empty-handed. So Paul wrote what is probably one of the most compelling appeals you will ever read for why Philemon needed to be gracious to Onesimus. And I think it's also quite likely that Paul decided to send one of his closest associates, Tychicus, to also go with Onesimus when he went back to Colossae. We heard about Tychicus in our opening scriptures. Tychicus is mentioned in both Ephesians and Colossians as the person who is bringing Paul's messages to those churches. For instance, in Ephesians, Paul wrote, quote, That is why I am sending Tychicus to you. He is a dear friend, as well as a faithful servant of the Lord. He will tell you how I am doing, and he will cheer you up. And then in the book of Colossians, Paul wrote, Tychicus is the dear friend who faithfully works and serves the Lord with us, and he will give you the news about me. I am sending him to cheer you up by telling you how we are getting along. The language Paul used in both of these greetings is very similar. In both, Paul says that Tychicus is a faithful servant of the Lord and that he will give the churches updates about Paul and that he will cheer you up. Apparently, Paul had a lot of confidence in Tychicus. But the similarity in this language does give you the strong impression that Paul wrote both of these letters near or at the same time. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to tackle these two epistles together. Obviously, if these two letters were written at the same time, well, one question that will occur to us is, which letter did Paul write first? Why is that relevant? Because when people write multiple similar documents, it is sometimes possible to see the progression of their thoughts as they go along. And we get to see that the writer is often imparting nuances that are important to understanding the content. School teachers always used to tell us to, quote, compare and contrast things to be able to better understand similarities and differences. Well, that same kind of thought process can be helpful as we come to Paul's epistles. In other words, we can often learn more by looking at all of the documents as a whole than if we just look at each document in isolation. I see what you're saying. If we look at one document by a writer, assuming it's a competent writer, we can certainly see what the writer wanted to communicate. But we can't necessarily pick up patterns or progressions in thought from a single document, as well as we can from multiple documents from the same hand. And that is especially true if we can look at several documents that were prepared around the same time. Exactly. Now, Paul, of course, varied the content of his letters based on a lot of different considerations. Each of the churches that Paul wrote to had individual concerns and issues, and often Paul needed to address those local situations. We saw that in the first letter to the Corinthians. If Ephesus was the Miami of its time, Corinth was the Las Vegas. Sexual temptation abounded in Corinth. So Paul spent more time addressing sexual temptation in 1 Corinthians than in any of his other epistles. Exactly. And another consideration that affected the content of Paul's various epistles was the state of development of the church itself. And as we saw in Galatians, Paul had to address the issue of certain agitators who were trying to tell the church members in the region of Galatia that they had to accept Jewish customs and laws before they could become Christians. Well, this assertion struck at the heart of the gospel, which clearly says that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone. So Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, forcefully rebutted this contention. Well, in Colossians, Paul apparently had to deal with a peculiar form of angelic worship. 
Colossae was located in a region in which a particular form of pagan worship had developed, and this religion in the Lycus Valley was the worship of the goddess Sibylle. The New Geneva Study Bible has this to say about Phrygia, the region in which Colossae was located, and the worship of the goddess Sibylle. Quote, in ancient times, the region had given birth to the worship of the goddess Sibylle, whose cult was characterized by ritual cleansing in the blood of a bull, ecstatic states, prophetic rapture, and inspired dancing. Within a few years of the inception of Christianity, along with these Phrygians, Epaphras and Paul found that an appetite had emerged for something more than the crucified and risen Christ. Sibylle and her lover, Attis, were transformed at some time by popular pagan piety into astral and cosmic powers, unquote. Right. And I would add that at this point in history, it was often thought in the pagan religions, especially the ones present in the Roman Empire, that the stars, the planets, and even the physical elements, earth, wind, water, fire, were thought to control the destinies of people. So remember that at the time Paul wrote Colossians, Epaphras, who is from Colossae, is with Paul. So Epaphras had reported to Paul that a form of syncretism, that's combining the elements of two different religions, was starting to take place in Colossae. So again, this is not surprising at all, given the religious history of the region in which Colossae was located. So Paul had to address that local issue in his letter to the Colossians. In Colossians, you see phrases such as, See to it then, that no one enslaves you by means of the worthless deceit of human wisdom, which comes from the teachings handed down by human beings and from the ruling spirits of the universe, and not from Christ. For the full content of divine nature lives in Christ, in his humanity, and you have been given full life in union with him. He is supreme over every spiritual ruler and authority. That's Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10 of the Good News Translation. And while you do see Paul addressing the supremacy and necessity for Christ in Ephesians, you don't see him addressing the specific concern of pagan angelic worship. Now, I want to add here that the Colossians do not seem to have been worshiping the angels themselves, but it is more as if they were trying to worship alongside the angels, and the angels in ancient times were often associated with astral or celestial powers. So, Paul seems to be addressing the issue that the Colossian believers wanted to somehow join the angels in sort of this celestial church service and then worship God. So that was a peculiar form of angelic worship that was present in the churches within the Lycus Valley, but that issue apparently was not present in the Ephesian church. Possibly because Paul had spent close to three years in Ephesus ministering directly. It may be that the Ephesian believers' extensive contact with Paul himself meant that they were far better grounded doctrinally. Quite possibly. What you do see in the letter to the Ephesians is much more of a spirit of awe and prayer and praise. But just for today, as we get close to closing out our episode, in Ephesians, you really don't see Paul addressing any particular local issue with respect to the content of the Christian faith the way he had to in the epistles to the Galatians or the Colossians. And so that freed Paul up to spend more time expounding on subjects that were more of general interest, such as the unity of Christ with his church and the relationship between our lives before Christ and our lives after we are saved. 
Ephesus was obviously a very special place to Paul, so it's unnatural that he would want to provide some last bit of encouragement to the believers who were there. In Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35, we have a record of Paul's last meeting with the Ephesian elders. At that time, he said, quote, I have gone from place to place, preaching to you about God's kingdom, but now I know that none of you will ever see me again. Look after yourselves, and everyone the Holy Spirit has placed in your care. Be like shepherds to God's church. It is the flock he bought with the blood of his own son. I know that after I am gone, others will come like fierce wolves to attack you. Some of your own people will tell lies to win over the Lord's followers. Be on your guard. Remember how day and night for three years I kept warning you with tears in my eyes. Unquote. That's from the contemporary English version. And that meeting between Paul and the elders from Ephesus, that was about three or four years before Paul wrote his epistle to the church while he was imprisoned in Rome. But Paul's warning to the elders helps us see the genuine warmth that Paul was expressing when he wrote at the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians, and I'm quoting, I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. So I never stop being grateful for you as I mention you in my prayers. And that quote is from chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 from the contemporary English version of the letter to the Ephesians. You know, somebody had reported to Paul that at least up to that point, the Ephesian believers were remaining faithful, and that fact genuinely pleased him. He'd been gone three or four years, and he was gratified to hear that the Ephesians were hanging tough, staying true. The other thing that's missing from Paul's letter to the Ephesians is any extensive defense of his own ministry of the type that is present in the letters to the Corinthians and the Galatians. Paul did not have to provide a defense of his ministry to the Ephesians because the Ephesians knew him very, very well. All of this goes to reinforce the major point that we are making in this Paul's Places series. The epistles, the letters Paul sent to the various churches we know in our Bibles by geographic labels, are consistent not only with the geography and culture, but also with the history of the early church. Paul had apparently never been to Colossae, or at least there would have been a lot of people there who had never seen him. But Paul had spent three years ministering personally in Ephesus. So the tenor of the two letters is different, even though they were obviously written about the same time. The religious traditions present in Colossae meant Paul put a special emphasis on the supremacy of Christ to any and all perceived celestial powers in Colossians. But Paul didn't have to do that in Ephesians. But in Ephesians, we do see a spirit of gratitude that probably resulted from the fact that even though Paul hadn't seen any of them for a while, someone had told him they were still remaining faithful. This sounds like a great time to go to prayer. Since we are close to the anniversary of the day that America declared her independence, today let's listen to a prayer for God's blessing to remain with this nation. Prayer for July 4th Father of truth and life, we exalt your name because you are the source of all good gifts that we enjoy. Lord, we are first and foremost citizens of your kingdom and we seek first your glory. Still, in your mercy, you have also made some of your children citizens of the United States. We cherish this privilege that you have extended to us. This was a nation initially brought into being by men and women who found in your word a strong call to freedom and a dependence on your providence. 
Through their faith, you led them to establish a land where its people could choose their leaders, worship freely, and work for their own prosperity. Today, we celebrate the legacy that they passed to us. In celebrating today, however, we are mindful that this nation has wandered far from the principles on which it was established. Too often, freedom of worship has been exchanged for license to condemn the worship of the one true God. Free enterprise has been chiseled into the cheap counterfeits of rapacious commercialism and rampant consumerism. Respect for truth has been sacrificed on the altar of diminished discernment. We pray that you would forgive us for wandering so far, and in your mercy we pray for restoration. We ask that you help us to again embrace your word as truth and your call to holiness as a personal charge. We pray that you would guide and direct our leaders and bring many to a saving knowledge of your majesty. The Bible commands us to be good citizens. We celebrate today because we cherish our citizenship in this nation. We pray that we would honor our freedom by helping others to see the real liberty found only in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.